Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. This year so far, according to reporting, more than 40,000 migrants have crossed the channel in small boats. That's the highest number ever, far more than the 28,000 that crossed in 2021. Why is this happening? And what are the conditions experienced by those that make the crossing? To help answer those questions, I'm delighted to be joined today by Colin Yeo, a barrister specialising in migration issues and author of two books on refugee law. Colin, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thanks for having me. Colin, let's try and start with the, the big question, if I may. Why are the numbers so significant this year in comparison with previous years? It's a good question. So until last year, what we're seeing with the, the increase in the number of people coming in small boats was a change of route. So people who previously would have been getting in lorries to come to the UK, uh, instead they were using this new small boat route that only really opened up in, in 2018. But over the last year or so, a little bit less than that, we've actually seen an absolute rise in the number of people who are coming to claim asylum. And it seems to be really because this small boats route has been so successful, it's so hard to stop basically by the, the British and French authorities um, that it's, it's become the main way that people come to claim, to claim asylum in the UK now. Much has been made in, in the media of the fact that a lot of those coming are from Albania, and, and it is alleged that it, that's not a particularly unsafe or difficult country to be uh, living in. Um, what do you make of that in particular relating to the, the Albanian component? It's a difficult one to comment on at the moment because I, I don't, I have to say, I don't trust the Home Office um, when they start quoting statistics that aren't yet in the public domain. So the sort of serious policy people and, and the sort of rest of us, we, we try to look at the quarterly immigration stats that are properly compiled by the Home Office and where you can see everything in context. Um, but they're a bit out of date. They're, they're always sort of behind time. And so the Home Office has been trailing over the last couple of months or so, this kind of alleged increase in the number of people from Albania. And, and it's probably true. My, my guess is that when we do see the new quarterly stats, the official stats being published at some point, we will see an increase in the number of people claiming asylum from Albania or arriving from Albania and possibly not claiming asylum. That's one of the other things we may see. But it's really hard to comment on selectively leaked statistics from the Home Office where they've just been sort of briefing their, their favourite journalists and so on. But is there anything, any sort of recent political or security development in Albania that would help us to understand this? As far as I'm aware, there's been no significant change in Albania. You know, it is a troubled small country. They, they do have problems with trafficking. Um, there's been political uh, instability there in the past, but there's nothing that's happened that I'm aware of recently that would have caused um, this increase. Well, I have seen that the, the Albanian prime minister is remarkably on Twitter, and um, he, he he got quite uh, quite quite annoyed with uh, some of the adverse comments that had been made about Albanians by British government ministers. And his his res- part of his response was that, well, the Albanians who who are coming to the UK, they're actually relocating from other EU countries, from places like uh, Greece and Italy rather than travelling directly from Albania. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that was that was his take on it. Obviously, we're speaking in, in a week that it is alleged, at least that Britain and France have made a major new agreement on how they will manage and sort of regulate this cross-channel um, migration. One of the things I want to try and get to the bottom of is the sort of debate around the idea which many British politicians have claimed that asylum claimants 
need to claim asylum in the first safe country they arrive at uh, in within the EU. And then this is then heavily disputed and, and um, debated in the public space. So w- what are the facts around that? And perhaps as part of that, can you explain the, con- the significance of the Dublin regulation? Yeah, so there's, there's no legal obligation on a refugee to claim asylum in the first safe country they reach, whether that's in the EU or, or elsewhere. But what we do have within the, the EU, or we, when I say we, obviously we're no longer members of the EU, um, but you know, what the EU does have is, is something called the Dublin system or the Dublin regulation, sometimes it's called, and that allows member states and some other states as well. So um, you know, the fact that we're not in the EU doesn't mean we can't participate in Dublin. Uh, Switzerland participates, Norway participates, for example, um, and they're, they're not EU countries. But it allows member states and participating countries to send people back to their first point of entry. So it's not that there's a legal obligation on the refugee as such. It's more that the state who sort of receives them has this legal mechanism for sending them back to that country um, for them to then deal with their asylum claim. Two obvious questions come out of that. The first is, why do politicians keep saying there is a legal uh, requirement? Is is this just simple dishonesty? Or is can, can we, being as generous as we can, try to understand how this sort of myth has come about? Well, I think a lot of politicians would like there to be a law. <laughs> they would like there to be a legal requirement on refugees to claim asylum in the first, 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 first safe country. And then they wouldn't be reaching the EU at all. Because, you know, if you look at the distribution of refugees around the world, there's about 20 million of them, according to UNHCR at the moment, maybe 25 million of them. And they've you know, the vast majority of them stay very close to their uh, originating country. So um, in Turkey, um, you know, you, you get uh, Afghans mainly living in Pakistan and Iran and the, the adjacent countries. But a small percentage of them do move on for perhaps understandable reasons, because life in a refugee camp there is, is, is pretty difficult. What I try to explain in the Dublin Convention, it's fairly nuanced. There's no legal obligation, but you can nevertheless be sent back. That's that's not very easy to sort of get your head around. It's not a very easy point to communicate, I don't think. And so I wouldn't say that they're deliberately misrepresenting the law necessarily. They are misstating it, though. Spoken like a very uh, generous lawyer. As an aspect of this, so if we've understood you correctly, um, not being in the Dublin regulation is, is what might ironically be termed a benefit of Brexit. Would there be a mechanism for the UK to be in that without being in other associated sort of migration agreements? I mean, would it be would it force us to join Schengen or something like that, for example? I do remember um, seeing that UKIP were campaigning for the UK to leave the Dublin regulation as if this was some sort of uh, you know European thing that was being foisted on the foisted on the UK. It, the Dublin Convention was originally agreed in the 1990s. It was very heavily pushed by the UK. It was essentially a UK initiative and it became eventually part of EU law because it benefits the UK. You know, the UK is right on the periphery of Europe. We're very far away from the the entry points into the EU um, for people claiming asylum. And so it was very much a UK initiative. So David Frost, when he was trying to negotiate um, the UK exit, tried to replicate some of the features of Dublin in his negotiations and failed abysmally, basically, and he's been open about that. It's very much a a set of laws that kind of favours the UK political approach to, to, to refugees. Um, whether it would be possible to rejoin despite not being part of the EU, I mean, technically, yes, because 
like I say, some other countries like Norway and, and Switzerland are members. But they do also participate in the single market uh, in the kind of free movement area. So whether it would be possible to achieve some sort of Dublin-like or, or actual participation in Dublin system without um, being part of the single market, without signing up to the kind of free movement system, um, I, I really don't know. And ultimately, it will be a matter of negotiation. But the fact that Frost failed um, to get what he wanted, um, you know, I've seen the proposals, they're incredibly one-sided. It was all about the UK gets exactly what it wants and the, the EU gets nothing. And unsurprisingly, that kind of classic cakeist approach to negotiations really didn't work. But it doesn't mean that a more nuanced um, approach, more realistic approach might not work in future. It is often said that if there were a safe and legal route for people to claim asylum inside France, then that would break the business model of the small boat operators. Is, is that true? I think it is true, but you have to be realistic about that as well. So if there were a straightforward, safe and legal route for people who wanted to cross the channel to come to the UK on a boat instead then obviously that would reduce the demand for, for crossing illegally in, in dangerous small boats. The reason I say you have to be realistic is that uh, you know there's a danger that that kind of advocacy sounds a bit like abolishing the border with France, essentially, and saying that, well, anybody who wants to come across could do. And once you start to think about those kind of proposals, you, you clear, I'm not saying you can't do them at all, and you, you certainly could, and we have. You know, if you look at the system for, for Ukrainians, for example, you know, we do have a visa application system for, for Ukrainian refugees. We've got a similar system for people who are fleeing political repression in Hong Kong as well. And the numbers entering under those routes are quite considerable. We've had uh, about 140,000 Ukrainians come in. We've had about 70, 75,000 Hong Kongers come in in the last in the last 12 months. So you, you can do this, but you do have to be realistic about it, I think. And you've got to think through how it's going to work. So if, for example, you've got a quota on the number of people who can apply, what's then going to happen to the people who you refuse? And what's going to be your ground for refusing one person over another person where they're actually equally vulnerable and so on? Uh, will it potentially attract people into France who wouldn't have traveled to France otherwise? Might it actually increase them? So you, you, I'm not, not saying you don't do it, but you do need to be careful and thoughtful about how you do do it. Yeah, I mean, but presumably... One of the things would be if it were easier in general to apply for asylum, then Calais itself would no longer be such a magnet. Is that fair? Because you, if, if, for example, you could apply from Turkey, you could then travel by air from Turkey to Britain if you were accepted. Yes. But again, there are potential practical problems with that. So the idea that, for example, there'd be an asylum queue outside the UK embassy in various different countries is you know, probably pretty unrealistic. And what about people who don't, who aren't able to leave their own country and, and reach an adjacent country? There are again issues around that which are not insoluble, but you, you know, you'd have to be quite careful about how you're to do it. One of the frustrations of um, watching the current government, and there's so many frustrations of watching the current government on, on just immigration asylum, apart from everything else as well. But um, you know, they talk about there being safe and legal routes. They pretend that there's some sort of queue that you can join and so on. Actually, they basically closed down what, what few safe and legal routes there were, apart from for Ukrainians and, and people from Hong Kong. So for example, you know, it's all the, the, the scheme that in theory exists to come from Afghanistan basically isn't accepting anybody that's kind of so gummed up with bureaucracy and with sort of quotas and, and rules and so on that nobody's entered under that for, for over a year now. 
these kind of routes could exist. You have to be careful about them, but they, they really don't exist at the moment. I'm really glad you mentioned the Afghan scheme because that's one where I've had personal interactions with Afghans who I'd worked with or, or I was certainly connected to from my time in Afghanistan. And I was dismayed to see that it essentially seemed to be a fake scheme. It was a scheme that the government could announce and, and therefore claim credit for being magnanimous. Uh, but as you say, no one really is getting here under that scheme. I mean, is, is that is that a, a reasonable assumption that it exists as something that can be announced with no intention of letting anyone in? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's absolutely maddening that the ministers uh, were able to get away with that. Uh, and to be fair, I suppose uh, it's not, not words you'll often hear me say about government ministers. I mean, they, they haven't talked about it very much recently. So um, it was something that Priti Patel used to talk about while she was Home Secretary. We haven't heard it so much under Bravman and um, you know the short, very short-lived Home Secretary Grant Shapps. A lot of people were not enough but people were were evacuated from Afghanistan quite a lot of people were actually ev- evacuated even if it wasn't enough it turns out that they were the ones who filled up this quota of i think it was 20,000 or something the government had announced over a number of years so it was basically about people that they'd already evacuated but they pretended as if it was some sort of forward looking scheme when it wasn't we've talked a lot about um aspects of the british government and its probable cynicism um, but I, I don't want to give a free pass to others. And one of the things that over years, re- repeatedly, British politicians have expressed, um, you know, exasperation with is the, the approach of the French and the, the degree to which they appear to allow the situation to build up at Calais so that you have a sort of weight of numbers there who are inevitably then going to seek to cross the channel. Is that a fair criticism or, or is it actually that France is taking many more refugees than we are. And after all, it's a large continental country that has a lot of open borders. What's your sort of overall take on the kind of good or bad faith of the French government here? I think it's very difficult for anybody in the United Kingdom to be critical of the French, given that they accept far more um, asylum seekers and refugees than the UK does. So and any criticism is, is misguided in that sense. However, it's also true that you know some of the people who are trying to leave France, it, it's a bit of a mystery why they haven't claimed asylum in France and why they aren't sort of enabled to claim asylum in France. And there will be some who they have um, close connections to the UK of, of, of some sort. So they might have family members here. Um, you know, the Dublin Convention, for example, it used to offer not just a way for the UK to return certain people to um, their, their point of origin into the UK, but also for unaccompanied kids to come into the UK if they already had family members there and they could show that. So there are undoubtedly some people who really could and should be um, in the UK, but not necessarily all the people that we're seeing coming across at the moment. So the fact that those people want to leave France is in some ways, uh, it's a criticism really of, of the French asylum system. We often hear, frankly, this sort of mythical idea that the the British welfare state is so generous, which is what's attracting asylum seekers here. Um, I think that doesn't stand up to any evidence. But I did, in a recent conversation, actually, with Alan Johnson, former Home Secretary, hear him talk about the fact that because we don't have a very strong sort of ID card or regulated employment sector, the attraction of the UK is more that people can 
find themselves in a kind of informal labour market more easily than they might in continental Europe. Do you, do you think that's a possible draw? I listened to that episode. Now, I thought it was interesting what Johnson was saying. I don't think there's really any evidence to back up what he's saying, though. So I don't have a particular ideological opposition to ID cards. I, I think there's a degree of British exceptionalism uh, for those people who say we can't and shouldn't have them here for various reasons. You know, they, they are very commonplace in, in, in other countries in Europe. But I haven't seen any research or evidence that suggests that that does actually act as a draw, a pull factor or whatever to the UK. There's almost no research that's been done on uh, and you have to be very careful with your language here, but I, I, I tend to fall back on using the, the term unauthorized population, people who don't have a legal status here. Some, you know, in, in America, they call them the undocumented. Politicians in the UK like to call them illegal. People who don't have permission to be here, basically. And we don't really have any, any it's, it's hard to do this, um, but, but not impossible, any good research on how many people there are. Um, how they get by, how they survive in in the hostile environment and so on. I think it's a little bit glib to say that ID cards offer some sort of magical solution to this. I can see there's, you know, it's a plausible explanation or plausible part of an explanation, but um, I'm, I'm not sure that the... Yeah, you know, it really stands up in terms of sort of evidence and research at the moment. Let's explore a little the the kind of lived experience of migrants once they have made it to this country. If a small boat arrives, is it the case that these people are then automatically taken to the notorious Manston airfield and then eventually processed into hotels? What what actually happens to these people when they arrive here? The way the system's supposed to work is that if you come and claim asylum, um, you get a fairly brief interview where your um, the, the Home Office likes to call it your biometrics. It's a fancy word for saying your fingerprints and your photo are taken, basically. And then quite quickly, you're supposed to be put into asylum accommodation, which is distributed all around the UK. And there's been all sorts of criticism of that accommodation. You know, It's sometimes very squalid. It's kind of privately contracted. It's nowhere near anybody you might already know in the UK or any existing communities or anything like that. But that system's kind of broken down because the backlog of asylum seekers is so big now. And you know, this is not because of the numbers have increased. Like I was saying earlier, you know, the numbers haven't or, or weren't substantially increasing until really the last year or so. But because decision-making at the Home Office has slowed down so much for, for some reason. The backlog has grown really substantial now. And all of the asylum accommodation, the normal asylum accommodation, is full. And so the Home Office officials are sort of looking for somewhere to put them um, that's not these kind of short-term holding facilities like, like the Manston refugee camp. And they, they've been struggling with that. You know, they've been having to book um, hotels and all sorts instead, which is really inappropriate accommodation and it's lasting a long time so you know it used to be that you could get an asylum decision decided within about six months and that was until about four or five years ago and then since then the the, the sort of waiting times for a decision have gone up and up and up and at the moment people are projected to be waiting for years for a decision during which time they're not allowed to work they're not allowed to support themselves and so they have to you know sit in the accommodation that they're allocated by the home office that's something I've had some personal experience of myself, and and it's worth saying I'm sure you've seen this too that these are hotels are not um, ones that you know anyone would particularly choose to be in, and there's been 
what I think looks like misleading reporting in some media that, that basically these are sort of four and five star hotels and these people are enjoying a kind of sort of holiday at state expense. But it isn't like that at all, is it? It's not. And it's kind of that's become a classic sort of far right talking point. It's not suitable accommodation. And, and these people, they don't want to be stuck in a hotel for potentially a very prolonged period of time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not what they want. In trying to understand why the Home Office does what it does, which admittedly is quite a challenging job. Um, this very slow decision-making process and a huge backlog, it's hard to see, even with a very cynical sort of lens, why that would be. Did, do you have any idea why, why things are slowing right down? I think it, it boils down to incompetence when it comes down to it. But that's that's a kind of quite... Uh, complex thing to unpack when we look at what's been going on. So, you know, as I say, th- these problems are relatively recent in origin. So until about four or five years ago, the asylum system was working fairly well. Lots of us had all sorts of criticisms to make of it, but the fundamentals of making decisions relatively rapidly and the decisions being reasonably fair, you know, about half of people were getting asylum and then and then further half would, would go on and win their appeals. And so on, and it, it was functioning, but it, it started to break down and it's kind of after Brexit, basically. And I don't think you can directly say that Brexit somehow magically slowed down decision making at the Home Office because no longer being a member of the EU caused that or something. But I I think there is a sort of fairly clear indirect link, which is that both officials at a senior level and ministers have been just massively preoccupied with other stuff, basically, and they've taken their eyes off the ball. Instead of refocusing resources to deal with a growing crisis, they've just ignored it, essentially, and let it be. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse without anything being done to address that. And then on top of that, we've had some policy decisions which have have made things worse. For example, the Ukraine scheme has been, you know, there were all those criticisms to start with uh, of how slow it was, how bureaucratic it was, all completely justified. But eventually, it's been quite a success in that a large number of people have been accommodated um, quite successfully, it seems. But this decision to make them apply for visas before they came to the UK took huge home office resources. That's at a time when small boat crossings were were increasing and there were other things going on. And on top of that, you've got things like, you know, officials being obsessed with the, the Rwanda scheme, um, coming up with all these wacky schemes to have you know, nets and, and wave machines and, and marine pushback and stuff, instead of focusing on the, the boring but really important business of actually running their department properly. As a final question, it would be stupid to imagine that there are low-hanging fruit. But if we had a, a more sane and a less performatively nasty government, or certainly a less performatively nasty home office, what do you think they could do quickly that would actually make a difference? Because it's clear that the Rwanda scheme doesn't make a difference. What policy tools are available, realistically, which could make a difference? I think we should explore expanding the Ukraine scheme to other nationalities, essentially. So to to open up potential safe and legal routes for people to come to the UK to reduce the demand for small boat crossings. Realistically, in current political climate, you probably have to pair that with some sort of arrangement with France so that people who 
do come not through that scheme um, can be returned, either a deal with France or with the EU, something like the Dublin system, which also you know, in, in includes sort of safer legal routes within it for, for, for unaccompanied children, like I was saying earlier. You could clear the backlog quite quickly. You could do um, what, what lawyers sometimes call prima facie refugee status determination. If you're from Syria, it doesn't take a lot to realize that actually you're a refugee and you should be granted status. You don't need to be waiting three or four years for somebody to tell you that. You could mm. just be given asylum very quickly. And there's a lot of countries like that, like Eritrea, Sudan, um, Afghanistan, Iran, where people cannot be sent back there because it, it's clearly they're going to be persecuted. And therefore, we could give them asylum really quite quickly. That saves a fortune because suddenly, you know, those people are able to support themselves or potentially they'd be supported by local authorities if in, in a minority of cases where they're, they're not able to work or whatever, but they're off the home office books, essentially, and it allows you to refocus on on, on other stuff. And one of, one of the things that I'd like to see, and um, I have to say, I haven't got any um, genius brainwave ideas on this yet, but one of the things I'd like to, to, the people to be to be thinking about is what the home office could do less of. So instead of doing more and more all the time. So, you know, the visas for Ukraine and, and, and things like this, um, what could they actually scale back on that would allow them to focus on on their kind of core responsibilities and, and, and running the system properly? Colin, uh, it's not often in the sort of migration debate we hear some sort of sane and measured ideas, but it was really uh, fantastic to hear, hear them from you today. So thank you very much for joining us in the bunker. Thanks very much for having me on. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every day. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.